Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, with an emphasis on verses 1 through 5. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. This is the word of God. Growing up, we've heard uh, a lot of stories, um, and uh, a lot of them from the Bible. Uh, We've read and heard about the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, uh, the burning bush, and the story of Moses, and we've heard about David and Goliath. And and now that we're older, we ask ourselves, what were these stories really about? And and that's the purpose of the series, uh, to be able to walk through the entire Bible, survey the Bible, and really gather an understanding of what God is really saying through his word. Now, we saw last week that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council. But he goes to Jesus at night because he wants to learn from him. And what does he learn? Well, he's going to learn what we're about to learn today. Jesus says the Christian life is so new and the changes are so radical that he calls it the new birth new life. This text teaches us three characteristics about new life in Jesus. One, it's the healing of our pride. Two, it's the healing of our longings. And lastly, the healing of our fatigue. Our pride, our longings, our fatigue. First, we're going to go into the healing of our pride. Who was Nicodemus? Verse 1, we know that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means that he was an older man. And to be a ruler, it meant that he was educated. He had a great pedigree. He was trained, and he worked hard, and he was successful. He was very well put together, and that means he had status, and he had wealth. And he was a Pharisee, which means that he had the highest moral standing. The Pharisees, you see, they they maintained, they committed to a system of 635 laws to conform to the Ten Commandments. What does that mean? Nicodemus, he didn't come to Jesus because because he needed higher morals. He lived life to the highest of standards. But yet he comes to Jesus, and Jesus has no education. Jesus has no credentials. Jesus has no training. And yet he goes to Jesus, and he calls him rabbi. It takes a tremendous amount of humility, a deep humility here. Very admirable. And even though Jesus was very unpopular, in verse 2, Jesus goes to Nicodemus and he says this. He says, you must be born again. Well, he comes to Jesus at night and and he says, you have to teach me. We have to to discuss this. He's very open-hearted. And yet Jesus, you got to think about this, Nicodemus trained, moral, educated, great pedigree, respectable person, goes to Jesus, unpopular, untrained, uneducated, no credentials. And yet, verse 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. 
You know what that means? What he's saying is, you have to start over, Nicodemus. Nothing that you ever did counts. Now think about this. When an average person hears the term born again, or born again Christian, what is that, what do they think about? They think about a certain type of person. Usually, it's a person who's had a very emotional experience, or it's somebody who commits to a very uh, high standard of living, high moral standards. But if you think about this passage, Nicodemus blows those two paradigms away. Because what does this passage tell us about what it means to be a Christian? On one hand, it can't be a call to higher morality because Nicodemus lived to the highest moral standards. And on the other hand, it's not just a call to have a higher emotional state. Why? Because Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus, he wasn't emotional. There was no emotional experience here. So being, being born again, it can't just be a call to higher morality or a call to higher emotional state. If anything, being a Christian challenges what makes you a moral person. And it challenges your emotional state, your emotional highs. We saw last week, John chapter 4. Here, this woman uh, who encounters Jesus, Jesus encounters this immoral, irreligious person, an uneducated, poor person. And yet she was a woman. She's the complete opposite of Nicodemus. What does that tell you? Chapter 3. No matter how good you are, no matter how well put together your life is. Chapter 4, no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how broken you are, both people need to be born again. And you can be born again. Jesus calls both people. You have to let go of your pride. The gospel challenges our ego. You have to let go of your pride. I worked hard. I deserve what I have. I deserve to be loved by God. I deserve to be noticed by God. That will ruin you. That will ruin us in this room. The gospel heals your ego. The gospel heals your pride because you did nothing to earn your salvation. Save for Jesus, God's grace coming to you, seeking you. The second thing we see in this text is that the gospel heals our deepest longings. We get to verse 5. Jesus says, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. What is water? Water is is life-giving. Water is cleansing. Water is refreshing. Water strengthens. God's Spirit is life-giving. It's cleansing. It's refreshing. Uh, he, He strengthens. Those terms are synonymous throughout the Bible, water and the Spirit of God. And what Jesus is saying is this. If God's Spirit is dwelling in you, if God's Spirit is implanted in you, you have new life. It doesn't matter how weak you are. You have cleansing no matter how broken you are. You have strength no matter how dry you are. And that's important because for the most part, being born again, it means more than just being nice. There's a difference between being new and being nice. This is not just behavioral modification, and that's the mistake that we so often make. For most people, yes, you know, the gospel, it produces a change in behavior. There definitely is a change. It's not more than that. It's not less than that. It's so much more than that. Michael Jordan, great, the greatest NBA basketball player of all time, arguably, I suppose. Michael Jordan, every year they say, every year to this day, he seeks out his trainer 
And he asks his trainer, if I were to go back into the NBA today, what would it take? A lot of people say he's still the best player on his team. He owns uh, one of the NBA basketball teams. They say he's still the best player on that team. And he goes to his trainer and says, if I were to play at that level today, what would it take? And his trainer gives him a regimen and says, actually, because of your age and you slowed down here, you're going to have to improve this area. This is what, the area that you're going to have to exploit to be the best still. And they go through a regimen. And every year, they say, he contemplates coming back. But that's not what this is. That's not what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need to start all over. You need to be born again. New birth. He's saying you need to change. There's a transformation that has to take place. Not so that you become better. A lot of us come to church. A lot of us come to Jesus and we say, I want to improve. What can I do to add to my life? And so we come with an agenda and we want Jesus to add to that agenda. How do I become a better person? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says it's not about being nice. It's about being new. It's not about improvement. It's about being new. So what does it mean then when we say that the gospel heals our deepest longings? As a child, we're taught to be good and we're judged in accordance with how good we are. That's what we do. And so we develop at a very young age this need. It's because there's this inward need from the beginning of our lives, from birth, there's this need to be approved. It's in our spiritual DNA. And so our parents and our educational systems, they feed this need. They feed this desire. It's created by sin. There's this, there's this chasm between God and man. And because we've lost the approval of God ever since the days of the Garden of Eden, there's this deep inward need to be received and approved and acceptable and loved. And that need to be approved, it produces in us, it, it leads to a shame. It leads to anger, pride, jealousy, bitterness. Then you get older. And as you get older, there's this, uh, you, you enter into high school and college, and what you have is you develop this social consciousness, this social awareness. You need to get in. You need to fit in with groups. And so what happens? You're meeting with lots of people, lots of different social circles. And as you get into these cultures and circles, and as you meet new people, that desire to be approved and accepted and loved is there. And so you do things that are counter to what you're taught a lot of times, depending on what social circle appeals to you. And so you start to do things that are counter to what you're taught, counter to what you've learned in terms of being approved and accepted and loved. And the reason why is because you're lonely. And as because we're lonely, we want love and we want approval, we want to be accepted, we want to fit in. And so what happens is it produces shame. It leads to shame, anger, jealousy, bitterness. Then you get older. And as you get older, there's this undercurrent of loneliness now that was there since birth because of our sin. And now it starts to grow. It's still there. You try to deal with it in different ways. You try to fit in in different ways. You develop these different circles in your life. You've done all these different things. And there's the shame and the anger and the jealousy and the bitterness. And you believe, if I can just find that one person in my life that's going to love me to the end, then I will be okay. And so you look for women, you look for men to solve this problem. If, some, if only somebody would love me, I'll be okay. And as a result, we get into relationships that we probably have no business getting into. And we stay in these relationships long, much longer than we should. And some of us, we get sexually active. 
promiscuous, you abuse others, you end up being abused. You manipulate people, you end up being manipulated. You try to control people, and you end up being controlled. And what happens as a result? There's shame and anger and jealousy and bitterness. And you get older. You think a house is going to solve your problems. You think a nice car is going to solve your problems. You think getting promoted, you're fighting for all these things, you're working for all these things. There's constant work, constant longing, constant working. You think your children are going to be the answer to your problems. Because if I can just feed and pour into them with all the love that I've got, then I will feel okay. Because if they grow up well and I'm able to extend my legacy into them, then and only then will I be okay. But our children, they're going to disappoint us. And you're going to disappoint them. And it's going to happen through cycles in your life. And there's cycles in life with your spouse and with your children. And it's constant disappointment. And it gets to a spiritual, cosmic level. What results? Shame because you've messed up. Anger because they, they're messed up. Jealousy because other people don't look messed up. And bitterness. You're broken. And you say, you know what? Some people say, well, you know what? I've been pouring my heart into the wrong things. So what do you do? You pour into your career. You pour into success. Pour into your wealth. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to think for me. So you end up fighting with other people, cheating and lying, manipulating still to stay ahead, to get ahead, to stay afloat, to get, you know, you start to step all over other people to get ahead. And then you realize sometimes, you, you know, you realize sometimes you get certain things by being good. Other times you get other things by getting drunk and sleeping with other people, by cheating and being bad. And as a result, what happens? There is the shame. There is the anger. There is the jealousy. There is the bitterness. And yet all the while, that need to be approved is there, still there. This time you get it from your coworkers. This time you need it from your boss. There's a fear and a, and a, and a pride and, and a sin, and it leads to sins, outward sins. All those things come back. Why? Because you're not new. New birth is not, I need something to help me improve. I need to fix my self-esteem or my self-image. I need something that's going to fix my sense of worth or my sense of identity or purpose in life. That's not what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus. You know why? Because Nicodemus had a sense of worth. Nicodemus had an identity. Nicodemus had every reason to hold himself up and say, yes, I've arrived. And yet Jesus says, you need to be new. That's what he says. You need a new birth. New birth means not just an improved sense of worth. It means a whole new sense of worth, a whole new identity, a whole new understanding of yourself. He says you need that. Verses 3 and 5, you need to be born again. That's what he says. What does that mean? To become spiritually alive is to have this ability to sense spiritual realities that you couldn't sense previously. And the reason why we couldn't sense these things previously, the reason why we couldn't understand or know or grasp these things previously, the Apostle Paul says it in, in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 17, he says this, They are darkened in their understanding, and having lost all sensitivity, they indulge. That's what he says. 
What that means is this, you know, because we're just trying, the Apostle Paul saying, we're just trying to feel something, and that's why we indulge. In other words, because we're darkened in our understanding, our hearts are dark because of our sin, because we're blind, there's no clarity in your life. Think about it. If you're darkened, there's complete pitch blackness. You're dark and you can't see anything. There's no clarity, not a glimmer of light. And you can't feel anything. It says you've, you've lost all sensitivity. If you can't feel anything and you can't see anything, you go crazy. And so what you do is you're just looking for something to see and looking for something to feel, something to hear, to something to taste. And so as a result, the Apostle Paul says, we indulge. We indulge. Our hearts become promiscuous. We're looking everywhere for something to grasp, to say this is real. This is reality. New birth, when you're born, what happens? For the first time in your life, you see. New birth is to have new sight. New birth is to have a spiritual hearing. New birth is to have a spiritual sense, a spiritual taste. You could see things before that you might have known, that you might have heard all your life, but you never truly experienced. It means to go back to the things that you heard all your life. And now, for some reason, the pages of the Scripture just start to disappear and the words come to life in your life. That's what it means. Now I'm starting to really hear. Now I'm starting to really see things that I've avoided about myself all my life things that I've run from, things that I probably knew that people have been trying to tell me, but I'm not willing to accept, but all of a sudden, I'm starting to see. And so you start to take it in. It becomes food for you. You realize man really doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So things that you've heard at one point, things that you rolled your eyes at, oh, I've heard this all before, now becomes something that thrills you. It becomes something that's real to you, tangible to you. You start to get it. It becomes something that comforts you, something that convicts you. And you ask yourself, why am I hearing this now? I mean, I've heard this all my life. Why am I starting to under, understand this now? Why am I getting this now? It's because now you have an appetite. Now you have a sight, a spiritual appetite, a spiritual sight. A spiritual, you're starting to lo- understand what real love is. You're starting to understand and experience the the love of God. And in new birth, God's love becomes something tangible, something that you experience, something that becomes more real. And so you taste it and you see it and you hear it. It becomes soulful to you. It becomes more than just an experience. It becomes soulful to you. The Bible's not just words. It becomes music to you. It makes you alive. Look, some of us, some of us are here and we're saying, I hear you. I believe you. I want that. But I'm young. I'm so young. I'm still, I'm weak and I'm young. Listen. Jesus says the gospel is like a seed. You know what a seed is? A seed is very small, almost negligible. But inside that seed, everything that it needs for life is in there. Everything that it needs to kick off life is in there. There's dynamic things going on in that seed. And when it gets buried in that fertile soil, what happens? Boom, the power awakens. And all of a sudden, boom, an oak of righteousness years later. 
There are people here today that are concerned because they tried. I tried. You know, uh, Tim Keller, my favorite preacher, uh, he says to me, he says not to me, he said in a sermon um, that uh, he can tell when a person doesn't get it because when they come to him for counsel and they say, you know, uh, I get this stuff, but I try, and I try hard. He says right off the bat, he knows they didn't get it. They don't get it. They don't get the gospel. Because the gospel is about letting go of the trying, you see. The gospel is about letting you, you, I get that you've tried, but it's not about what you can earn. It's what Jesus, by his merit, has earned for you. And so there are people here who are concerned because they've tried and it doesn't work. They're concerned because they want to try and they're afraid. Well, if I try, what do I have to give up? You got to let go of your assumptions. Let go of your assumptions about Jesus, about the church, about the gospel. Let go of all the things that you think you that you think you know about Jesus and about the church and about the gospel. You have to let go of all the conditions that you have in front of Jesus, in front of the church, in the gospel. Inquire. Ask. You know, if you have questions, there's nothing wrong with having questions. If you have questions, that means that something's happening. You see? If you're saying, man, I want to know this, but I'm so frustrated because I don't think I get it. That's an amazing thing because only the Holy Spirit can even tell you that something is happening. Those questions that you have, that's God working there, you see. But once you take it in, once you take it in, the gospel gives you a new sight. The Spirit of God gives you a new sight, new ears, new taste to heal the deepest longings for acceptance and approval and love and righteousness because you see it. It's like a banquet. You can take it in. You can digest it and you can say, yes, this is good. I've tasted it all my life and it never tasted good until now. Why is that? It's good. It's because it's real. The gospel's true. Lastly, the gospel heals our fatigue. The entire passage is about being born again. And uh, just a chapter later in John chapter 4, we've heard and we've read this great example of Jesus bringing spiritual healing to a woman who's just really broken. I mean, it's very obvious. In this case, with Nicodemus, it's not that obvious. But in the case of this woman in John chapter 4 that we heard last week, we see this promiscuous, outcast, poor woman, just completely broken, very obvious. She doesn't have credentials. She doesn't have a pedigree. She doesn't not even educated, and yet she's born again, you see? I mean, this story, this narrative kind of ends open-ended a little bit. We don't see until later. But John chapter 4, we see, uh, in fact, the author makes it very clear to us that many people, we see the ending of her story in some ways. She becomes one of the first missionaries for the gospel, goes back to the very town that she lived in that she was trying to avoid and says, come see this man. So we kind of see a, a very, we see something very special here, Jesus bringing healing to this woman Nicodemus, on the other hand, complete success. This woman is a failure. Nicodemus is a male ruler in his society. This woman is an outcast woman, right, in society. And yet Jesus calls them both. Jesus, what is he doing with Nicodemus? Is he arguing with him? 
Is he fighting him? Get out of my face. Is that what he's saying? You don't get it. Get out of here. No. He calls him in. He comes to him at night, and he counsels him, and he teaches him. You have to let, you have to argue with the Bible, and you have to let it speak to you and teach you. Jesus calls them both. Very significant. Because Nicodemus could have easily said, at the, on, the, on the other hand, listen, you don't have to preach to me. I'm a, I'm a, do you know who I am? I'm a high member of the Jewish ruling council. I'm a Pharisee. I get it. I've arrived. I made it. Who are you to speak to me like that? Jesus says here to Nicodemus, who could have been in the, a mayoral candidate, you must be born again. And he's, basically what he's saying is it doesn't matter if you're royalty. It doesn't matter if you're a streetwalker in John chapter 4. Both of you are the same. What does that mean? Whether you're trying to save yourself by being moral, whether you're trying to save yourself by being helpful and educated to be a teacher, whether you're trying to save yourself through your own beauty and your looks, it doesn't matter. You're trying to save yourself. That's the point. And the Bible says salvation belongs to the Lord. In the Old Testament, you have Jonah, prophet. Jonah realized after he was swallowed up by a fish, he was tossed overboard into a sea, into a storm, swallowed up by a fish, sinking to the bottom of the sea. There he realized that religion, your pedigree, because he was pedigreed and he was religious, it creates biases. It creates judgment towards other people. They were always, you know, stepping over other people to save yourself, to make yourself feel better about yourself. And yet Jonah realized there, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what he realized. And basically when you're saying, when you're trying to save yourself, when you're trying to use your education, your status, and even your goodness as a way of saying, yes, I'm okay. This is the reason why you're okay. You're trying to be God. You're trying to save yourself. Because if you're going to be born again, it's only by the sheer grace of God, through God's intervention, through God's power. You contribute what? Nothing. You got to let go of your pride, right? Point one. You got to let go of your conditions, your assumptions, point two, right? Think about this. We have a lot of babies in our church. Babies, when they're born, what do they contribute? They contribute nothing. They don't contribute anything. They don't even plan to be born. It, none of it's up to them. It's all based on what their parents decide, what their parents have done. The problem is there's something in our hearts that tells us you need to do it because he's doing it, and he's doing it well, so you need to do it. There's the jealousy. There's the bitterness. There's the anger. And when you fail, there's the shame. And when you succeed, there's the pride. You see how that works? You need to do it. And you can do it. Why? Because you're beautiful. You've got skills. You're better than him. He doesn't deserve that. There's the pride. There's the anger. There's the jealousy. You say, oh, you come from a better school. You come from a better family. He comes from a broken home. You can do it. You can make it yourself. All that comparing our, of ourselves that we do, and we compare. You compare yourself with some of the stupidest things, don't we? We do that. Some of the most stupid things, foolish things. We compare success. It feeds our envy. It feeds our pride. But what it does is it makes us tired. 
We're constantly working. We're never at rest. And what it does is it keeps us away, keeps greater distance between us and God. It's not until you recognize and realize that salvation is a gift by sheer grace, then you start to experience the, ra- the rest in Christ. That's when you experience it. Only when you recognize that salvation is by sheer grace, the sheer grace of God, then you are born again. That's what repentance, by the way. Repentance is what? It's not just a prayer that you pray. A lot of us think that, oh, I need to repent. That means to just go back and just pray some prayers. You have to say and acknowledge deep in your heart. There's a confession in your soul that says, I've been trying to save myself, and these are the ways I've been doing it. I need to loosen my grip on these things. I need to stop relying on these things to save me. Every time you feel that tinge of jealousy because somebody else that doesn't deserve it is making more than you, and you complain in your heart, that jealousy, that bitterness, that pride, that ego, that anger. When you say, you know what, I'm relying on that to make me feel better. How pathetic is that? When I should be resting in the sheer grace of God, His love and grace towards me in what Jesus has done, then that is, you can't top that, the love of God. The assurance of the love of God, you can't top that. And say, that love is for me. Let that melt you. And you gotta, you got to say that to yourself in different ways. you got to convince yourself again. Beat, you know, Martin Luther said, you got to beat yourself with that truth until it overwhelms you into a love for Jesus because of his love for you. That's the only way that you're going to rest. That means you got to let go of all the things that you thought meant life to you all the things that you pursued because this is what life is. You need to let go of all the things that you're proud of, your desirability, your buying power, your buying strength, the fact that people respect you, your wealth, and what you think that wealth is going to do for you, the security and the power and the influence that it can buy you. Yes, it's good to be intelligent, but it's what that intelligence says about you and you cling to that. So what that means is we have to come naked. Babies, when they enter the world, do they come fully dressed in garb? No, they come naked. You got to come naked before God. No baby comes out of the womb saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I was a somebody in there. Send me back. Nobody does that. Babies, they come out naked Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone, alone. When you come to God like that, you're born again. Have you? Another thing about babies... Right, babies come naked. When babies are born, they're never happy. Right? I've never seen a baby uh, enter into the world, <laughs> you know, uh, very, uh, a very liberal Baptist preacher once said that uh, when babies are born, everybody else is celebrating except for the baby. The baby is crying. 
right? And you know why the baby's crying? It's traumatic when you're born. The air is cold. There are bright lights. So they're squinting. They're barely able to open their eyes, right? They're squinting. There are loud noises. There's shock. There's trauma. The air, when they breathe in air for the first time into their lungs, it's painful. Reality hits, and it hits hard from day one. From the first moment they enter into the world, reality hits, and there's no more cushion. Now there's sin, and there's death, and there's suffering. Jesus Christ is not saying that when you're born again, everything's going to be great now. Everything's going to be awesome now. That's not what he says. But because you're born through in sin and you're born through pain, but you're born through the pain and the labor of somebody else. Somebody else is doing the work. Today, in our culture, we're born, when you're being born, it's relatively safe. There's still tremendous risks, but you're born relatively safe compared to decades ago. And you, nowadays, when you're born... Uh, it can be even a less painful experience. There's anesthesia. There's a lot of uh, our medical uh, community can do a lot to alleviate that pain. But when Jesus was talking about being born again, he was talking about being born at a time when no baby saw life unless his mother saw great risk to her own life. Tremendous risk. Why this metaphor? Because if you're saying... He's saying if you get new life, it's only going to be through the pain and suffering at the risk of death to somebody else. And yet Jesus Christ, what he's, he's saying when you're born again, spiritually when you're born again, it's only going to be through the pain and suffering of somebody else who didn't only risk his life, but it came at the cost of his life. He gave his life. Somebody had to die for you to be born. That's what he's saying. And he didn't just experience a physical pain and suffering, but something far deeper, far more painful, because on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate pain. He tasted the ultimate bitterness. Every part of his senses was suffering. Jesus Christ came to the world, and when he came, he came naked, and yet he had no status, no education, no pedigree. He was homeless, and on the cross, he was stripped naked. So he came into the world naked, stripped naked. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was saying is now I've truly lost my status. Now I've truly lost my ultimate title, my ultimate honor, my ultimate wealth. I have no cover for me. I'm completely exposed. The wrath of God, the penalty for our sins was being pelted and just he was being pelted with the wrath of God. And he had nothing to cover himself from that wrath. And he had lost his home, completely disowned by the Father, God's only son, forsaken. Why? He gave up everything for us, for you. There's the approval. There's the acceptance. There's the love that you've been looking for. If you pursue it by your own means, it leads to what? Anger, jealousy, bitterness, lostness. But here... There's the validation you've been looking for all your life. And Jesus Christ took on our sin. He took on the wrath of God. He experienced the hell, a million hells, the suffering of a million hells, the death, complete separation from God. The bitterness and the anger and our pride and our jealousy. And as the cross ripped apart his body, 
the holy punishment that we deserve ripped apart Jesus' heart. Why? Because he got what we deserved. Why? So that we could have everything that he deserved. Jesus Christ lost sonship. Why? So we could have him. Jesus Christ lost the approval and the acceptance of the Father. Why? So that we could have the, the acceptance and the approval of the Father. Jesus Christ received the wrath of God. Why? So that we could receive the Spirit of God. New birth. Jesus Christ died so that we can have new birth. That's the gospel. There it is. In John chapter 16, Jesus talks about a woman, a woman in labor. And he basically says this. He says, that's me. I'm like that woman in labor. And the hour has come. That hour that he's talking about in the, book, in the gospel according to John always refers to the hour of his death. Basically what he's saying is, in spite of the fact that a mother is an incredible pain, in spite of the fact that a mother is an incredible pain, the sight of new birth fills her with tremendous joy to the point where she says it's always worth it. A mother seeing the crowning, right? Seeing the child, just the dim hint of the joy of new birth. And what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16 is, I'm like that mother when I look at you. All that pain, all that suffering, all that laboring, even the death on the cross, you will know that it was all worth it. It's all worth it for you. I did it all for you. Jesus Christ gave his life for you. Until you see that, until you believe that, until you rest in that. To rest in that means to say, I'm forsaking all these other things that I've rested in. That's why I'm not rested. That's why there's fatigue, because all those other things make you work. He says, now rest in him. Come to me, he says in Matthew. Come to me, all who you are, are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. It is easy. Why? Take my burden. It is easy. You will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. Until you see the gospel, until you believe the gospel, until you look to the cross and see that that's Jesus, and that's, there's your love, there's the approval, there's the acceptance that you've been looking for all your life. And to know that when he died, he didn't sit there and say, you know, you, I did this for you, you better be thankful and grateful because look at what, that's not what he does. He looks at you and he says, like a mother seeing the birth of his child, there's the joy. There's the joy that I have. He did it with gladness. That will let you rest. There is the end of fatigue. There is the end of trying to earn. You know, if you know that the king of the universe looks upon you and says, I'm so glad that you are born into my life. In fact, I give you everything that I've got. I've sacrificed everything that I have so that you could be born, so that you could be with me. Does it matter to you the brokenness of what other people have said about you, maybe all your life, will it heal that? And so we're constantly working to get the approval back. Can it heal that? It will. It will. It changed the wealthy, educated, pedigreed scholar who only probably heard good things most of his life and certainly most of his adult life. A ruler like Nicodemus, it changed his life. It also changed the poor, uneducated, non-pedigreed, immoral woman, an outcast woman like the Samaritan woman. If it could change a Nicodemus, 
if it could change a Samaritan woman. And I don't know how many of us will have greater moral standards than Nicodemus. And I don't know how many of us will have lesser moral standards than this Samaritan woman. And yet, if it could change both, if the gospel can change both, it can change you. It certainly can. In John chapter 19, Jesus Christ is still on the cross. There's only women around him. All his friends had abandoned him. And yet, there was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the people who asked for his body to bring him down, to dress him, prepare him for his burial. So that means that he was there to help put the spices on, clean his body off, wipe his body off of all the blood and, and that was caked on him, and then they helped him bury him. The Bible doesn't say that Nicodemus was saved, not explicitly. But if you think about this, this is an incredibly bold move because it came at a time when uh, their leader was slain. Jesus was dead. And all his followers are scattered and hiding. And yet Nicodemus was willing to get up in front of his circles and say, yes, I will be there to help him. And it's also kind of interesting because only women did those types of things. Only women were there. Only women, the, the burial, the spices, the preparation, it was generally a job for women. And it was something that poor people would do. And so what did that tell you? Here's Nicodemus, a rich, a wealthy, educated, status-driven man, says, you know what? I will stand forward and stand with this man. And I will do the work of poor people. And I will do the work of women, low people in society. I will get low. He doesn't say, all the cultural pride is gone. Only women do these things. I don't have to do it. The class pride is gone. Only lower people do these things. Nicodemus, at the least, became bolder, more courageous, and humbler at the same time. More courageous and more flexible at the same time. He became new. If it could happen to him, it could happen to you. Let's pray.